Let's begin in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the absolute truth of your word. Now, Lord, I pray as I've prayed in just about every service that uh, you would give us the ability to understand. Open our eyes, our minds, our ears, our hearts, so that we might understand the scriptures. For in the scriptures, you are revealed. Your way is revealed. Life is revealed. Truth is revealed. We come seeking all these in the name of Jesus tonight. Amen. Tonight we begin chapter 3, and Paul begins chapter 3 by validating his ministry to the Gentiles. Now let me tell you what that's going to look like. How would you validate your ministry? How, how, do, you, how do you get credibility with outsiders? How will Paul validate himself as an apostle to the non-Jewish world? By the fruit. By the fruit. The Bible specifically refers to validation. Look for the fruit. A tree will produce fruit. Jesus says, if you want to know what the tree really is, look at the fruit. What validates? Let's start with verse 1, chapter 3. Are we beginning to praise ourselves again? Are we like others who need to bring you letters of recommendation? In other words, will, will letters of recommendation, will a really nice looking resume or cover sheet validate who I am, who Paul is, who you are? Do I need to bring you letters of recommendation? Are we like others who need to bring such documents or, or who ask you to write such letters on our behalf? Do I need a character reference? Surely not. The only letter of recommendation we need is you at Corinth. That's who he's writing to. The only letter I need to validate my ministry to the Gentiles, Paul's saying, is you people at Corinth, you yourselves, your lives are a letter written in our hearts. Everyone can read it and recognize our good work among you. Clearly, you are a letter from Christ showing the result of our ministry among you. This letter is written not with pen and ink, but this letter, you want something that validates? Here it comes. This letter is written with the spirit of the living God. It is carved not on tablets of stone, but on the human heart. Does Paul need anyone or any of the other apostles to validate his calling of Christ to be apostle to the Gentile? No. What about today? Does this only have application to Paul in 2,000 years ago? No. You know, you can say anything. You can take a piece of paper and write anything on it. You can, you can have the best resume in the world. But what's the fruit? What's generated from your life? What's hanging off the branches? It's hard to fake that. If you want reality, look at reality. What's hanging on the branches? Look for the fruit. The validation of Paul's calling is the changed lives of the people at Corinth. Now, changed lives is not changing their circumstance. 
changed lives is changing the inside of a person. You know, you can change somebody's circumstance and not change their life. You've got to change the inside of somebody. There's the fruit he's referring to. Real validation is not on paper, but written on the human heart. Why? One is external, the other is internal. One, anybody can write down anything, but I'm going to tell you, not just anybody can come inside of a person and change you from the inside out. God's the only one who knows how to do that. He can come inside of a person's heart and change them from the inside out. Paul uses this to validate his calling. The Holy Spirit is the validation. And the power of the Spirit changes a person's heart. The Holy Spirit. Let me say something on that. I'm convinced of this. The Holy Spirit's presence always, and I want to focus on the word always, produces fruit. Always. Why do I say that? Jesus says this, I am the vine, you are a branch. If you abide in me and I in you, you will bear fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. He's a vine. It is a good vine. If you attach yourself to him, you're not maybe going to bear fruit. Your fruit will not be depend upon how industrious you are. Listen. It's going to surprise some of you. It's not dependent upon how industrious you are. It's not dependent upon how smart you are. In fact, quite frankly, you might be too big for your own britches and actually reduce the amount of fruit possible from your life. It is the connection to him that produces the fruit. It is just simply, simply, simply connecting your life to the Holy Spirit connecting this branch to that vine you will produce food let, fruit. let me put it another way and prove the point can anybody in this room imagine can you with your imagination in in full gear imagine that the presence of god moves inside of your human flesh and nothing changes really that God moves into this temple. Not the one in Jerusalem. This temple. The one that's got legs. He moves into this temple and nothing changes. Really? No, nobody believes that. If, he, if you really believe he moves inside of you, then you believe he does something when he arrives. His presence changes you and his presence initiates your purpose because your purpose is actually his purpose coming through your life it's unstoppable you don't have to be incredibly creative i've used this illustration people laugh at me or fuss at me here you go a lot of christians think that your life needs to be this <laughs> you're trying to squeeze out some fruit on the end of your branches <laughs> i see I see people in church all the time. It's like they're, they're straining to try to get some fruit in their lives. That's not how you do it. In fact, you're just going to make a mess, literally, doing that one. <laughs> what? Just connect. And every day, every day when you wake up, 
connect again. Every day, just connect. You will bear fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So what's one of my primary responsibilities as a follower of Christ? Check my connection. Check my connection. Things aren't going good. <laughs> Look over and see if you're unplugged. Say, so you, you wander so far away from that your extension cord unplugged itself. Check your connection. Why? Not only does it produce fruit, it produces a testimony. You have a story to tell. You have a story. Don't tell somebody else's story. Tell your story. There's nobody can look at you and say, well, that's not true. Well, how do you know it's not your story? It's my story. You can't tell me my story's not true because it's my story. You have a story when you connect and he affects you. You have a story. Tell your story. That is the testimony that defeats Satan. What? My story. No, and, if, and if you're having to make up a story, go see if you're connected. This is Paul's validation of his ministry. It's not just Paul's validation of his ministry. It's the church's validation of the ministry. Well, so what's your story? If we were to line up one at a time, come up here, you're talking about terrifying an audience. What's your story? Can you just simply say, let me tell you what Jesus did for me. There's your story. Quit trying to make it complicated. Because you know what? All the people who are around you, that's what they want. They want to know that there is somebody who can come inside of us and turn our darkness into light. Just tell them the story. It's, it's been working for 2,000 years now. Verse 4, we are confident of all this because of our great trust in God through Christ. Notice the two words, confident, trust. We are confident in all this because of our great trust in God through Christ. It is not that we think we're qualified to do anything. Here's this, <laughs> we're qualified at my effort, my, my, how many hours I work in a day, no, no. It's not that we think we're qualified to do anything on our own. Our qualification comes from God. He has enabled us to be ministers, here it comes, of a new covenant. Don't, don't just read over that new covenant thing. This is big. He is qualified. God qualifies. Not your resume, not your training, not your hard work. God qualifies us as ministers of a new covenant. This is a covenant not of written laws, but of what? Say it out loud. Spirit. The old written covenant ends in death. But under the new covenant, here's the Spirit again. What's it do? It gives life. Confidence is faith, and faith is to be confident. So let's stop there for a moment. Because he, in verse 4, says we're confident of this because of our great trust in God through Christ. Can you say tonight you have faith, but you're not confident? You're not sure. Okay, let me put it another way. Can you tonight say you have faith, but you're not sure about the Bible? I'm going to ask you, what is your faith in? 
what, what, what do you, you say, I believe. What do you believe in? Well, I believe in Jesus. Can you say you believe in Jesus, but then if you really were to be honest, you'd say, but I'm really not sure. Do you have faith? What's the Bible say faith is? In the book of Hebrews, it says what? Faith, NIV version says, faith is being sure of what you hope for and certain of what you cannot see. This is what the ancients were commended for. And then it goes to the list of people. Did you notice the key words? Two words, sure, certain. Faith is being sure and faith is being certain. Faith is to be confident. If you're sure and you're certain, you're confident. Now, now what's your confidence in? Yourself? No, <laughs> that's not very sure and that's not very certain. Why? Because you know what? I'm not sure and I'm not certain of me. Who can I be sure and certain of? Jesus. Holy Spirit. Will he fail you? Are you sure? Are you certain? What about when you're in a pickle and all kinds of bad things are happening all around you? Can you still be sure then? Can you still be certain then? You ever notice the list, we call them the Hall of Famers in Hebrews chapter 11? What, what are they? They were people who were sure. Did they have perfect lives? No, no I'm going to tell you what, most of them lived messed up lives. But you know what made them separate from the world is they were sure and they were certain and they had a confidence that God was who he says he was and he's going to do what he says he's going to do. We have no earthly qualifications to carry out the mission of the church. Did you hear me? None of us in the room, especially me. We have no earthly qualifications to carry out this mission of the church. It must come from God. Now, I've never been to seminary. I've never been to Bible college. Uh, I think it's late enough in life now there's no reason to try. Okay? And I've got nothing against that. I, I think that's great, and I think that's awesome. But the fact is, that in itself cannot qualify you for this calling. It can't do it. Because it cannot be, a, it, it, in fact, I worry that much of the problem in the modern church is it has become a substitute for the Holy Spirit. It has become a substitute. And a, a degree or a professor's letter has substituted for the connection of a branch to the vine. And there is nothing that qualifies us, any of us, to be ambassadors of Christ in a lost and dying world except one thing. We have encountered Him. We, we have connected our lives to Him. And now the life-giving Spirit flows from Him into me. And the life-giving Spirit flows from Him into you. And people who come in contact with you who are connected to him will be affected by him, not us. In fact, it was years ago, I was in a Bible study. i got to be careful, I really get sidetracked on this one. Um, I was in a Bible study and I was reading where Jesus stands on the shore and he looks at Peter, Andrew, James, and John and he says, come follow me. And suddenly... Like in an instant, I came to this conclusion that the same voice that called Peter, Andrew, James, and John lives in me. 
He's the same Jesus who stood on the Sea of Galilee and spoke personally is the same Jesus living inside this flesh. He's not a different Jesus. He's not the smaller version. He's Jesus. The Holy Spirit calls. He equips. He empowers. He's the same Jesus. Now, if Terry Cooper stands on the side of the road and calls somebody, <laughs> they'll run over him. But what if the same voice that called Peter, Andrew, James, and John and called Paul? What if the same voice, what if that person moved inside of us and we were so connected to him that he would speak through us to the world that doesn't know him and introduce himself and say, follow me. Is it the same voice? Can he move inside these temples? Or do you think he's still in Jerusalem? What is the church? The body of Christ. The body. If we're the body, he's in the body. We're the hands and the feet of Christ. The church is the ministry of this new covenant. Do you understand the new covenant? The old covenant is mostly described in the Old Testament, and the new covenant is mostly described in the New Testament. And here's what. Do you know what the word, look it up, do you know what the word covenant means? Testament. So when you read the Old Testament, you know what you're reading? The Old Covenant. When you read the New Testament, you know what you're reading? Then New Covenant. That might help understand what we're about to say. The Old Covenant was the written law. Right? Read it. I think there were 614 things that the Jews had been given from God they're supposed to do or not do. Not just 10 commandments, but there were 614 mitzvahs, I think they call them, that you can and cannot do on certain times or, or certain places. 613. That's a whole lot to keep up with. And the problem is, the old covenant of the written law led to what? Death. Well, why did it lead to death? Because nobody could do it. Nobody could do it. What, all of it? Jesus says if you break one, you break them all, right? Who didn't break any of them? Be careful when you answer. There was one guy, a Jewish guy from Nazareth. He didn't break any of them. The new covenant is of the Spirit. And instead of leading to death, it leads to life. This new covenant will be with the Jews and the Gentiles. Now stay with me because here's where we're going tonight. Paul is an ambassador to the Gentiles. But this new covenant, was it only for the Jews? No. Was it only for the Gentiles? No. It's a new covenant. It leads to life. It is not of the written law. It is of the Spirit. Is it for Jews and Gentiles? Yes. Yes. This new covenant is for Jews and Gentiles, and it was prophesied by Jeremiah. If you're going to ever understand the New Testament, you will have to understand the Old Testament. 
If you want to understand what this writing of 2 Corinthians is, you've got to be able to grasp the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. Because if somebody starts describing a new covenant to you and you don't understand the Old Covenant, none of it makes any sense. So I want to do something. Jeremiah describes what's going to happen and prophesies it. And he's going to prophesy what God is going to do to the Jews. Now, well, I'll come back to that in a minute. Let's go, let's go back up, back up to Jeremiah 31. Now, he's prophesying, okay? He, he, this is a future tense announcement. The day is coming, says the Lord, when I'm going to make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. Now, now stop there. The day is coming. It's not here yet. Not when Jeremiah was on the earth, right? He's going to make it with Judah and Israel. He's going to make it with the Israelites, with the Jews. Okay? And it's going to be a new covenant. Now, what was the covenant they were in when he wrote this? The old covenant. This covenant will not be like the one I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt. They broke that covenant. Though I love them as a husband loves his wife, says the Lord. But this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel on that day. Okay? Now, now don't answer, but I want you to wonder, has that day happened yet? Where he's going to do something uniquely to Israel? But this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel on that day, says the Lord. I will put my instructions deep within them. And I will write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they will be my people. Now when do you think that's going to happen? Or maybe you think that's already happened. When the full number of Gentiles comes in, this will happen. Everybody listen. When the full number of Gentiles comes in, I'll read it in a minute, this is going to happen. What? What's going to happen? There's going to be a new covenant he's going to make with the people of Israel on that day. I will put my instructions deep within them. I'm going to write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And they will not need to teach their neighbors, nor will they need to teach their relatives saying, you should know the Lord for everyone from the least to the greatest will know me already. How is, how is that going to happen? He's here. He's going to do something supernatural after the full number of Gentiles comes in. And I will forgive their wickedness and I will never again remember their sins. Jesus instituted this new covenant at the Lord's Supper on that Thursday night before he died on the cross. Now what are we talking about? Jeremiah prophesies the day that there will be a new covenant with Israel on the inside. They won't have to teach each other because everybody will know. It won't have to be evangelistic, will it? Because they're already going to know from the inside out who he is. Now, 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 that's a future tense event that I don't think has happened yet, that I think will happen after the rapture of the church takes place toward the end of the seven-year tribulation. 
So when did Jesus announce the new covenant? That's Jeremiah's announcement, prophetic announcement of the new covenant. So what's Jesus doing on Thursday night before he goes to the cross on Friday? Verse 20, uh, Luke 22. After supper, he took another cup of wine, and he said, this cup is the new covenant. Here we go. They're talking about the same thing, a new covenant from God between God and his people. Can they be Jew and Gentile or both? Either? An agreement with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. Now, the Apostle Paul then refers to this new covenant in his first letter to Corinth. I want to understand what this new covenant is. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 11. Paul says this, For I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. Please don't read over that. Paul wasn't there with Jesus in Jerusalem for the Last Supper. He didn't come till later. So how does he know this stuff? What I'm about to tell you, I received from the Lord himself. I'm going to tell you, there's any number of answers to that. None of them are specifically recorded except this. Paul says, I was lifted to the third heaven and I saw things that I cannot discuss. I cannot write them down. Obviously, he can write this one down. What? I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread. Understand something. Paul wasn't there. Jesus is telling him after the fact, the events of the Thursday night. And he's, he's, and he's writing it to the church at Corinth. What is it? On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and he gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it into pieces and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this to remember me. In the same way, he took a cup of wine after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people. Is that just Jews or could that be Gentiles? Between God and his people. An agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this to remember me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing two things. You're announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. Have you ever thought about that? Because I do every Sunday. When I take that cup and I drink it, I am doing two things. I am announcing the death of Christ. I am announcing the return of Christ. Both. A covenant confirmed in blood, a covenant of the Spirit. And before I can continue, we got to get this one point. A covenant confirmed in blood, because no covenant with God is a covenant without blood. It is confirmed in blood, sealed in blood, not just any blood, the blood of His only Son. But it is also a covenant of the Spirit. So, what is the Spirit? Who is the Spirit? Is the Spirit a what? Or is the Spirit a who? Is the Spirit a person? And if the Spirit is a person, who is that person? The Spirit is Christ. Christ is the Spirit. Are you sure? Yes, I'm sure. Yes, I'm sure. The Spirit is Christ. Christ 
is the Spirit. So who is the Spirit? The Spirit is God. Well, I thought you said the Spirit was Christ. I did. So who is Christ? Can he be God? Can the Spirit be God? Can the Father be God? Can all three be God? This was eye-opening to me years ago. When the, when the gospel reveals the virgin immaculate conception, churchy word for the centuries, when the gospels reveal how Mary got pregnant, do you know what it says? It says, and the Holy Spirit will come upon you in power, and you will conceive and give birth to a son. So what was it that came upon Mary? We're adults here, so we can figure out the details. What was it that came upon Mary that put a seed inside her womb? What was it? The Bible says. What was it? And the Holy Spirit will come upon you. So somebody tell me why we don't call Jesus the Son of the Holy Spirit. Because most people, especially in church, don't struggle with the idea that the Holy Spirit is God and God is the Holy Spirit. But you know what a lot of people struggle with is that Jesus is the Holy Spirit and Jesus is God. In Isaiah, it is announced in the same context of the virgin shall give birth. It is also announced that the virgin shall give birth to Emmanuel. Which means, what? God with us. So, back to the original question. If this new covenant is of the blood, sealed in blood, if this new covenant is of the Spirit, which leads to life, who is the Spirit? Jesus. God. In us. In this temple. In us. What did he tell the woman at the well? A time is coming and I say is not, has already come. It's here now. When men shall not worship. What? In buildings made by the hands of men. For God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Her whole problem was she thought we got to go to Mount Moriah or we got to go to the Samaritan mountain and Jesus says no 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 time's coming when you won't have to go to any mountain he's coming to you his spirit's coming to you he'll move into your temple a Hebrew the Hebrew writer confirms the Jeremiah prophecy now if you wonder what if that Jeremiah prophecy is a stretch I'm going to tell you the New Testament quotes the Old Testament in the book of Hebrews I want to read it to you. Hebrews is the New Testament, the New Covenant. It's going to quote Jeremiah's prophecy of the Old Testament. Here it comes. But when God found fault with the people, with Israel, he said, the day is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. When did he do that? When he found fault with them. He, he announced he didn't, he didn't announce, I'm going to throw them away forever. He says, instead, I'm going to make a new covenant with Israel. This covenant will not be like the one I made with their ancestors. Anybody, does that sound familiar to any way? I read it a minute ago from the book of Jeremiah. 
Same words. This covenant will not be like the one I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt. They did not remain faithful to my covenant, so I turned my back on them, says the Lord. But this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel on that day, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and I will write them on their hearts. What's the Hebrew writer doing? He's quoting Jeremiah. What? And it's future tense even in Hebrews. It's still future tense. It's still an event to come. It hasn't come yet. And by the time the Hebrew writer writes this, Jesus' death, burial, resurrection is already done. And it's still future tense. I will be their God and they will be my people. And they will not need to teach their neighbors, nor will they need to teach their relatives, saying, you should know the Lord, for everyone from the least to the greatest will know me already. And I will forgive their wickedness, and I will never again remember their sins. When God speaks of a new covenant, it means he has made the first one obsolete. It is now out of date and will, future tense, future tense, soon disappear. Future tense. Hebrew writer, New Testament, church age, soon it will disappear. When? When the full number of Gentiles comes to Christ. When the church age closes. The church is the ministry of this new covenant. Jesus is the mediator of this new covenant. And listen, right now. If there's one thing I want to try to communicate tonight, it's this. Right now, we live in the church age, the time of the Gentiles, but I am convinced the church age is drawing near its end. This new covenant, Jeremiah prophesied it, Hebrews repeated it. What? There's a day coming in the soon future. He uses the word, soon it will disappear. What? Soon there's going to be an event takes place that the full number of Gentiles, the church age, God's call to the Gentile, non-Jewish world will close. Door's going to close. And he's going to turn to Israel and he's going to do something supernatural. He's going to do something on the inside of them. And he's going to remove the veil and they're going to see what they couldn't see. So what does that mean to a Gentile in the church age? <laughs> you better come to Christ before the flesh Gentile comes. Let's go to Hebrews 12, 22. Now, it's kind of hard to give you context on this one. I, I'm drawing a comparison between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. So the Hebrew writer says, no, you, have, you, have, you didn't come to the Old Testament. You didn't come to the old, old Covenant. No, no. You've come to Mount Zion. You know what that means? You've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to heavenly Jerusalem, and to countless thousands of angels of joyful gathering. Now, anybody remember the Old Testament story? When Moses is there and God's going to reveal his glory on the mountain and all the people surrounded, but they couldn't touch the mountain or they would surely die. And the glory of God descended. And what did all the people do? They begged Moses to never again allow them to be so terrified as they were when God came. They begged him, please never let us see you again. God's glory was so frightening that the people were terrified. 
He says, no, you didn't come to Mount Zion. That, that's, that's not what the church has been called to. You didn't come to Mount Zion. To the, you, no, no, you didn't come to, to that mountain with fear. No, you came to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to countless thousands of angels in joyful singing. You came to the assembly of God's firstborn children whose names are written in heaven. Pause for a minute. I wonder how many people, when they come to church this Sunday believe that they're coming to the assembly of God's firstborn children whose names are written in heaven. Kind of change your entire perspective about when your wife looks over, are we going to church today? Yeah, I reckon. Instead, you know, you know we're going to the assembly of God's firstborn children. That's a privilege. It's not a burden. That make you get up early. Brush your teeth twice before you go to that one. You have come to God Himself, who is the judge over all things. You have come to the spirits of the righteous ones in heaven who have now been made perfect. You have come to Jesus. Somebody say hallelujah. You have come to Jesus, the one who mediates what? A new covenant between God and people. And to the sprinkled blood which speaks of forgiveness instead of crying out for vengeance like the blood of Abel. And by the way, this new covenant that we've been talking about is glorious. And when I say the word glorious, I want you to envision absolute pure white light. When I say glorious, I want you to envision light. So white, so bright, so pure, so holy. This new covenant is the Spirit. This new covenant is the blood sprinkled from Jesus Christ. It is white, pure, light, holy, glorious. Now, I can say this. Verse 7. The old way, the old covenant, with laws etched in stone, led to death, though it began with what? Glory. How? Did the original covenant begin with this white light glory of God? Yes. Yes. But it ended in death. How did it begin in glory and end in death? Though it began with such glory that the people of Israel could not bear to look at Moses' face. Anybody remember the story? Moses encounters God. He's there with, four, with God 40 days. He comes down the mountain and what? It looks like he's plugged in somewhere, right? They're terrified to look at him. So they, they put a veil over his face because they're so afraid of him. Why are they afraid of light? Because they know where the light comes from. They stand in the presence of God. And you know what? When you're dark, and you know you're dark, and you stand in the presence of light, it's a frightening thing. When you know that you are sin. What did Isaiah say when he was brought into the presence of God? I am ruined. Woe to me, I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the glory of God. I will die. What? Because when unholy encounters holy... When darkness encounters this great glorious light, 
It's a frightening thing. So we didn't come to this fearful assembly. No, 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 no. We came to something different. He says this. Let me go back to the beginning. The old way with laws etched in stone led to death, though it began with such glory that the people of Israel could not bear to look at Moses' face, for his face shone with the glory of God, even though the brightness was already fading away. Shouldn't we, in the church age, under the new covenant, shouldn't we expect far greater glory in the new way, now that what? The Holy Spirit is giving life. If the old way, which brings condemnation, was glorious, how much more glorious is the new way? So every time I say the word glorious, I want you to imagine this bright, white, glory, holy light. If the first light on Moses was incredible and everybody shrunk back in fear, how glorious is this new light? It's more glorious. If the old way which brings condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the new way? What's the new way do? This new way makes you right with God. In fact, the first glory was not glorious at all. What? Moses coming down with that light. The first glory was not glorious at all compared with the overwhelming glory of the new way. So if the old way which has been replaced was glorious, how much more glorious is the new which remains forever? How many of y'all would like to go back and do it the Old Testament way? Mm-mm. How many of you want to say hallelujah because we were born in a time when we can do it in the new covenant? Hallelujah. This is our ministry. Church, this is our ministry. The gospel message is Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant between man and God. Jesus made a way for us to be made right with God, at peace with God through the blood of Christ on Calvary's cross. We must believe and be confident, bold in our proclamation of this new covenant, or we will never be able to carry out this ministry. <clears throat> we must be bold. We must be confident. And you cannot, and I cannot give somebody something I don't have. I cannot give you what I don't have. I cannot pass along the truth of this new covenant unless I have the truth of this new covenant. Because what makes me an ambassador of this new covenant is the Holy Spirit. And if I don't have the Holy Spirit, I can't tell you about the Holy Spirit. It's impossible. Verse 12. Let's keep going. Since this new way gives us such confidence... Is it working? Let's be honest. Come on. Come on. Let's get real. Since this new way tonight gives us such confidence, we can be very bold. You know what the church isn't today in America? Bold. Why? Why? Why are we shrinking back? Why are you afraid? Why are you nervous about telling somebody about this guy named Jesus? It's a proper question. 
It's a proper question for the modern church. Since this new way gives us such confidence, we can be very bold. We're not like Moses, who put a veil over his face so the people of Israel would not see his glory. No, no, no. Church, did you not get the memo? You're not supposed to veil the glory of the Spirit inside of you. Let her shine. Let it shine. Moses put a veil over him. But we've been instructed, take the veil off. You're confident. You're bold. You know what? It, you know the cure to death. Well, I don't want to tell anybody. They might be offended. What do you mean they might be offended? They're going to die. How many believe you really have the cure to death? I'm serious. It is also a proper question. How many of you believe you have in your possession the cure to death? We're not like Moses who put a veil over his face so the people of Israel would not see the glory even though it was destined to fade away. But the people's minds were hardened. And to this day, whenever the old covenant is being read, the same veil covers their minds so they cannot understand the truth. You're, you want to know why very few people, Jewish people in the world or in, or in Israel today believe Jesus is Messiah? I just read it to you. I'll read it again. The people's minds were hardened, and to this day, whenever the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, is being read, the same veil covers their minds so they cannot understand the truth. And this veil can be removed only by what? Believing in Jesus. Yes, even today, when they read Moses' writings, their hearts are covered with the veil. Now, he's specifically talking about Israel, the Jewish people. So even to this day, Paul says, now he's writing in, in the time of the first century church, their hearts are covered with that veil and they do not understand. The old covenant was veiled. Now that's a reference only to the Jews, at least for now. And even then, the glory of God was veiled. That veil has been and will be removed by faith in Jesus Christ. The temple veil was torn when Jesus died on the cross, and that veil has been removed for the Gentiles of this world. I, I, let me say, God removed that veil for me because I can see. He's been removing that veil for Gentiles in the church age. Now, does that mean that there haven't been any Jewish people had the veil removed? I didn't say that. But as a nation, as a people, has the veil been removed? Not yet. Not yet. Not yet. One day that veil will be removed from the remaining Jews as well. Now, I want to get into the detail of that. If you want to understand the new covenant, here it comes. With Christ as my witness, Romans chapter 9. And by the way, Paul, writing this to a Gentile church. Paul, a Jew is writing this to a Gentile church. All right? You want to understand the new covenant? Here it comes. A Jew telling Gentiles. With Christ as my witness, I speak with utter, utter truthfulness. My conscience and the Holy Spirit confirm it. My heart is filled with bitter sorrow and unending grief for my people. Who's his people? 
the, my Jewish brothers and sisters, I would be willing to be forever cursed, cut off from Christ, if that would save the Jews. They are the people of Israel, chosen to be God's adopted children. God revealed his glory. There's that light. God revealed his glory to them. Who's them? Israel. He made covenants with them. Who's them? Israel. And he gave them, who's them? Israel. He gave them his law. He gave them the privilege of worshiping him and receiving his wonderful promises. Now, Paul is distraught. Why? Because he is the ambassador to the Gentile world of a new covenant that Israel has rejected. And he's tore up because he knows the cure to death and his Jewish brothers and sisters are dying without Christ. Now, go down a few verses to 25 concerning the Gentiles. God says in the prophecy of Hosea, those who were not my people, I will now call my people. Do you understand what you've been given? Do you understand what that means? To those who are not called my people, I will call them my people. That's us. That's us in this room right now. To those who are not my people, I will now call my people. And I will love those whom I did not love before. Gentiles. And then at the place where they were told, you are not my people. There they will be called. What? Are you ready for this? Are y'all sitting down? I think so. Children of the living God. He broke off branches from that tree and gave you a place. You're not stepchildren. You're children of the living God. Now, jump down to verse 30. What does all this mean? Even though the Gentiles were not trying to follow God's standards, they were made right with God. And it was by faith that this took place. What? A bunch of Gentiles, he opened their eyes, and they believed. But the people of Israel, who tried so hard to get right with God by keeping the law, never succeeded. Why not? Because they were trying to get right with God by keeping the law instead of trusting Him. Now, now here, here's a defining moment. They were trying to be made right with God without trusting God. Church, church, listen really carefully to that sentence. Can you consider yourself to be a person of faith, but you don't trust God? <laughs> for your finances, for your health, for your children, for your future. Do you trust Him? Can you consider yourself to have genuine faith, and you don't trust Him? When you gave your life to him, when you offered your body as a living sacrifice, when you crawled up on the altar and said, may the blood of Christ cover me, you were saying to him, I surrender my life, all that I am to you, because I trust you with everything. That's faith. You see, the problem with the Jews, as Paul describes it, is they were trying to be made right with God 
by obeying the rules instead of trusting God. Did you hear me? By obeying the rules instead of trusting Him with everything. Didn't work. Verse 32 again. Because they were trying to get right with God by keeping the law instead of by trusting Him. They stumbled over the great rock in their path. Who are they stumbling over? Who are the Jews stumbling over? A Jewish guy named Jesus. God warned them of this in the scriptures when he said, I am placing a stone in Jerusalem that makes people stumble, a rock that makes them fall. But anyone who what? Anyone who what? Comes to church? That is not it. That's not the criteria. Anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. Do you trust him? Are you sure? Now, go from 9 to 11. Chapter 11. Paul says, I ask then, has God rejected his own people? So, so, now he's opened up this to the Gentiles. Sorry, Jews, you're out of luck. Wrong. Has God rejected his own people, the nation of Israel? Now, how much more plain do we need to put it? Paul says, has God rejected his own people the nation of Israel. Of course not. I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, and a member of the tribe of Benjamin. No, God has not rejected his own people, whom he chose from the very beginning. Do you realize what the scriptures say about this? Elijah, the prophet, complained to God about the people of Israel, and he said, Lord, they have killed your prophets, torn down your altars, and I'm the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. And do you remember God's reply? He said, No. I have 7,000 others who have never bowed down to Baal. It is the same today. Did you hear that? It's the same today. What? Has God rejected Israel? No, no. It's the same today. For a few people of Israel have remained faithful. And this is, okay, this is first century church. At the time of this writing, for a few people of Israel have remained faithful because of God's grace, His undeserved kindness in choosing them. And since it is through God's kindness, then it is not by their good works. For in that case, God's grace would not be what it really is, free and undeserved. So, this is the situation. What's the situation? Most of the people of Israel, notice the word most. Most of the people of Israel have not found the favor of God they were looking for so earnestly. A few have. The ones God has chosen. But the hearts of the rest were hardened. As the scriptures say, God has put them into a deep sleep. To this day, He has shut their eyes so they do not see and closed their ears so they do not hear. Now, look and see if you can see Jeremiah's prophecy revealed in what I'm about to read to you. I'm jumping down to verse 25. I want you to understand this mystery, dear brothers and sisters, so that you will not feel proud about yourselves. Who's he talking to? He is talking to Gentiles in the church age. 
I don't want you Gentiles in the church age to feel proud of yourselves. Some of the people of Israel have hard hearts, but this will last only until the full number of Gentiles comes to Christ. Now, I'm going to tell you, I believe that event, that sentence is the rapture of the church. The full number of Gentiles. I believe that is when he will call the bride his church, to himself. And so, what follows that? By the way, what follows that period? What follows that sentence? When the full number of Gentiles comes to Christ. What's next? Look at the next word. And so, all Israel will be saved. What? When the full number of Gentiles comes in, what's he going to do? He's turning to Israel. Anybody see Jeremiah's prophecy being fulfilled in these verses? I will make a new covenant with them and I will write it upon their hearts. And they won't need to tell somebody else about the Lord because everyone will know about the Lord because Jeremiah's prophecy is fulfilled in this writing too. And so all Israel will be saved. As the scriptures say, the one who rescues will come from Jerusalem and he will do something. He will come out of Jerusalem. Where's Jesus coming back to? He's coming to Jerusalem. He will, he will come from Jerusalem and he will turn Israel away from ungodliness. And this is my covenant with them. What is it? I will take away their sins. Many of the people of Israel are now enemies of the good news. And this benefits you Gentiles. Yet they are still the people he loves because he chose their ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For God's gifts and his call can never be withdrawn. Once you Gentiles were rebels against God, but when the people of Israel rebelled against him, God was merciful to you Gentiles instead. Now they are all rebels. Now, now they are the rebels. <clears throat> and God's mercy has come to you so that they too will share in God's mercy. For God has imprisoned everyone in disobedience so that he could have mercy on everyone. Oh, how great are God's riches and wisdom and knowledge. How impossible it is for us to understand his decisions and his ways. So how does one remove the veil? If you can't see, you can't see. So how does one remove the veil? Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Works 100% of the time. Jesus. Now, back to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We'll finish that chapter. Yes, and all of that, we're going to finish the third chapter. But whenever someone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Whenever someone turns around, and faces God. The veil is taken away. For the Lord is the Spirit. And wherever the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So all of us who have had that veil removed, somebody say amen. All of us who have had that veil removed can see and reflect the glory of, our, of the Lord. And the Lord who is the Spirit makes us more and more like Him as we are changed into His glorious image.
The Spirit is life, and the Spirit is a person. His name is Jesus. The new covenant is through the Spirit, and the Spirit is Christ Jesus living inside of these physical bodies, these temples. This is the essence of the new covenant. Tonight, I have read the essence of the New Testament, the new covenant. The life-giving Spirit of Jesus Christ inside of us is the new covenant. Now finally, Romans 8. So now, there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And because you belong to Him, the power of the life-giving Spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not do. He sent His own Son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving His Son as a sacrifice for our sins. He did this so that the just requirements of the law would be fully satisfied for us who no longer follow our sinful nature. But instead, who do we follow, church? We follow the Spirit. Father, tonight, thank you for your word. Thank you that you took away the veil. Thank you you called our name. Thank you for the season in which the Gentiles could receive this glorious gift. And I pray for Israel. I pray for the day that their eyes will be opened, the veil will be removed, and they will cry out, Yeshua Messiah. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you for being here.